I'm Alex Mosette and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. We, uh, we just had Tim Kendall on the show on, uh, a few days ago on Monday. It was great to have him on. He's CEO of Moment, but he was on that Social Dilemma documentary. We were talking a lot about the battle with these content platforms like Facebook, um, what's happening with their matchmaking algorithms, and it was a very good conversation. Uh, it was great to have him on. I think it's a really good, um, really good number of clips and full episode. If you want to go and listen to that and really dig into what's going on with, you know, these algorithms, the matchmaking, the censorship, uh, and someone that was early on at Facebook and and their first director of monetization. So that was really awesome to have him on the show. Uh, first topic is Farfetch going east. So we just had news here that Alibaba and Richemont are going to invest $1.1 billion in Farfetch with a focus on China. A couple interesting things with this. Actually, Farfetch, prior to this deal, was partnered with JD.com. JD.com, you know, um, actually, if you rewind the clock a few years ago in China, they were probably the number two e-commerce player, but, but mostly linear. Um, they didn't have much marketplace supply. In recent years, JD has been making a push to go more marketplace, get more third-party supply. It's been helping them. They've been gaining traction. They did a deal with uh, Farfetch to bring their luxury goods supply into China and kind of help use the Farfetch infrastructure and network and ecosystem to uh, you know, get get more of these kind of Western luxury goods into China. Basically, what Alibaba has done is they have stolen that deal, and they're going to do that deal. Um, and 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 so JD is still going to be an investor um, in Farfetch, but now the partnership is going to be with Alibaba uh, and not JD.com. Pretty interesting. So $600 million, so both Alibaba and uh, Richemont, which is a huge luxury good conglomerate, they own a lot of uh, jewelry brands. Interesting thing about Richemont is that we've spoken about them before on the show. We've spoken about them because they are the owner of this thing called Uke's Net-A-Porter. And we've talked about Uke's versus Farfetch in a linear versus platform comparison because Ukes is a luxury good e-commerce player, but they are linear. They are a reseller, right? They buy all the inventory and then they resell the inventory, but they do it digitally through e-commerce. Um, we have been skeptical, right? We have been in, in typical winner-take-all fashion. We have been skeptical uh, about Ukes's but model versus Farfetch's model. Farfetch has third-party supply. They have these brands listing inventory into the marketplace. They have, you know, boutique shops. This shop in New York City, patron of the new, right? Um, that you know was actually one of the early, early um, sellers on Farfetch many, many a year ago, right? So they get network supply. They have winner-take-all dynamics. They are. Basically, Farfetch and um, and the Real Real, also a public company, more U.S. focused. Farfetch out of uh, out of the U.K. So anyway, long story short, Richemont has come up come up 
prior on winner take all, but in a linear fashion. So the interesting thing here is that maybe they watched the show. Maybe they watched the show and they said, oh, we need to embrace this marketplace thing. Let's go in on this deal with Alibaba. 300 million each, Alibaba and Richemont, 600 million going into Farfetch. And then they're both putting 250 million for 500 million collectively into a JV. Um, that's going to be the Chinese entity with Farfetch and, and these two other players. So long story short, Richemont is embracing marketplace. Good for them. A smart move. Um, also interesting is that there is another, another player in this, in, in, uh, this deal from the luxury goods sector. Artemis, the controlling shareholder of Gucci owner Caring, also plans to increase its stake in Farfetch. So you are seeing some of these luxury good brands, manufacturers start to embrace marketplace, right? Start to say, hey, I should have a stake in this, right? I can use uh, my leverage. You're like, why would you want to do that? Well, um, now you're going to get better data. You're going to get better cooperation with the marketplace. You're going to get better ability to run placements or, you know, get better positioning for your products on the marketplace, right? You can, you can do special kind of collaborations or promotions or give specific inventory to the marketplace, right? You can treat the marketplace um, like a different channel, right? Just like you would treat your retail stores versus third-party retail stores differently and what inventory you give to the different channels. But the key here is that there's only going to be one or two dominant marketplaces in a given vertical. So if you've put money into, you know, one of the dominant marketplace businesses that is going to have aggressive growth, which we've seen with uh, what Farfetch and the Real Real are doing, that can be a very valuable, both just investment that can build enterprise value, but can also bring some strategic synergies back to the core business. Separately, what we're seeing, we, we are seeing, so, you know, Farfetch has a, a wide variety of luxury goods. What's interesting about Richemont here is the uh, jewelry and the watches, right? There are jewelry and watch specific marketplaces. And we are seeing the sneaker marketplaces like Goat and StockX also get into jewelry and watches. So I think jewelry and watches is, is, is really the next battleground for marketplaces. You've got the Farfetch and the Real Reels that are clearly putting an emphasis. You've got the jewelry and watch specific marketplaces. And then you have the unicorn kind of sneaker marketplaces that have a very hip high-end demographic buying audience very into watches and jewelry also getting more into jewelry and watches jewelry and watches to me is the next kind of luxury good marketplace battleground uh, and i think there's a couple ways to to get into that uh, puzzle depending upon you know the continent uh that we're talking about us europe asia and um you know the the, the different kind of strategic priorities so I'm sure there will be more to come. Next topic. Ant IPO is suspended. Hmm. I thought this Ant IPO was going to be the biggest IPO ever. Ant was just going to clobber every other IPO. This was going to be massive. Jack Ma setting records. Well, 
Now things can change when your business is controlled by the Chinese government. How billionaire Jack Ma fell to earth and took Ant's mega IPO with him. It's called you poked the bear that actually controls your whole business called the CCP. That's pretty much this whole thing in a nutshell. Basically, you know, what this article says is that Jack was at a conference. They were about to do his IPO when Jack Ma chose to launch a blistering public attack on the country's financial watchdogs and banks. The regulatory system was stifling innovation and must be reformed to fuel growth, billionaire Ma told a summit in Shanghai on October 24th. Attended by the great and the good of China's financial, regulatory, and political establishment. Hmm. Interesting. Chinese banks, he said, operated with a pawn shop mentality. It was this speech that set off a chain of events that ultimately torpedoed the listing of Ant. Basically, stung by the attack, Chinese regulators and Communist Party officials set about reining in Ma's sprawling financial empire, culminating in the suspension of the IPO. On Tuesday, it was a costly miscalculation. Now, this isn't going to stop here. This is just the beginning. It's not tit for tat. It's you poke me, I clobber you. That's the response the CCP is going to have on Ant. And there's, I think there's going to be uh, multiple waves of retaliation. You know, it's going to be not, not a one for one kind of battle here. It's going to be a one for 10, right? Jack Ma did this. It's going to come back 10 times worse for them. Uh, state regulators started compiling reports, including one on how Ant had used digital financial products like Huawei, a virtual credit card service, to encourage poor and young people to build up debt. Again, this is a communist government. It's very easy to uh, quickly become the enemy of the communist government and for the communist government to point its finger at you and say, you're actually an evildoer. Evil doer. Look how rich you are. Look how much you've taken advantage of people. You're worth tens of billions of dollars, Jack Ma. You're actually horrible as opposed to being, you know, a star beloved by the people. Uh, now the communist government and its media arm and all the, the tools it has at its disposal can bring you from up here to down here very quickly. So the General Office of the State Council compiled a report on the public sentiment about Ma's speech and submitted it to senior leaders, including, including President Xi. Uh, <laughs> um, top Chinese leaders then became more involved and asked for a thorough investigation of the company's business activities, which eventually led to the halting of the IPO. The People's Bank of China, China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, China Securities Regulatory Commission, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, and the State Council Information Office did not immediately reply. But you know that every single one of those groups, those bureaucracies and, uh, you know, uh, Chinese controlled entities are, are fighting with a vengeance here against Jack Ma and, and Financial. In years gone by, most regulators had left him alone. And then the article actually talks about where they'd had some run-ins with regulators in the past and he was able to use his star power to kind of go above them, you know, to the top uh, people in the CCP and, and, and get that regulatory scrutiny kind of put to the side. Now it's coming back in a big, big way. Uh, this is not going to be the last that we hear about this. You know, ultimately, I was never bullish on this anti-IPO. Why? Uh, I mean, obviously, we talk about how all these Chinese tech monopolies are basically just at the whim of the, the CCP. Um, and there's huge uh, risk in, in and of that regard, um, that's why Platt 
You saw Platt actually limit its exposure to foreign uh, foreign platform stocks, particularly Chinese platform stocks. I think it's capped at like 10% international exposure. Platt's on fire. I think it's up like 65% since it came out in May of 2019. That's our uh, that's Wisdom Tree's platform public platform ETF uh, that we helped them launch. So you see the ticker in the bottom. All of our Platt stocks. Um, Farfetch is in Platt. Um, Ant would have probably been in Platt uh, as well. We need we need to check it out and do more diligence, but certainly a platform business and uh, a large one at that. But but why I'm not bullish on it is because um, the U.S. government is aggressively now waking up to the influence of Chinese tech monopolies abroad. And hmm, guess what? Chinese tech monopolies that touch the financial system are of particular interest to U.S. regulators. And, oh, you know, the, the U.S. hooks that we have in the financial system just around the globe are pretty strong, which means that if the U.S. government wants to shut you out of the financial system of anything that touches the dollar, they can just about do that to maybe like a 95% degree accuracy. Um, and that is essentially the decree that has come down from the Trump administration in the past few weeks is exactly that, to limit ants' activities outside of China. We immediately saw uh, ants' language about their growth prospects leading up to the IPO not reference international growth at all. And all of their statements have been focused on their ability to grow, to grow in China. And now the founder just poked the eye of the beast called the CCP and just pissed that bear off to no end, which is where all their growth prospects are. And now that's not looking so hot either. So it's a great company. It will create a lot of it has created a lot of value. It will be profitable. It will make a lot of money. The question is, just like all of these platform stocks, will they a be able to keep up the growth? That's how they're valued. These are growth stocks. And if you can't show huge growth on the horizon, your multiple gets pummeled. Um, while it may have very nice profit margins, and those profit margins could exist for a long time, I don't think they're going to be able to meet the kind of growth objectives and the growth expectations, which certainly they had going into this IPO. This is going to be a considerable haircut um, based upon just you know both of these things: the limiting of the international uh, pro you know exposure and growth prospects, and now biting the hand that feeds you. Um, not a smart decision. <clears throat> so that's Ant. Now, uh, next topic here is uh, Vimeo. Vimeo. So there's news here. Uh, Vimeo owned by IAC. Vimeo raises $150 million as parent IAC looks to spin it off. IAC, Barry Diller, they know platforms really well. Um, Expedia, Inplat, that's an IAC company. Barry Diller is the chairman of Expedia. Match.com. Uh, also, you know, has been spun out, owns Tinder, um, also spun out of IAC, other platform businesses, uh, which you might be familiar with, 
Angie's List. They did a roll up with these home service marketplaces. Angie's List plus Handy. They rolled all those up um, to uh, Home Advisor. I think Home Advisor, Angie's List, and Handy. They rolled all those up for a home services marketplace play. They understand platforms really, really well. Vimeo is not a platform. Vimeo tried to be a YouTube competitor, uh, but Vimeo is no longer a platform. They had to pivot. They had to move away from that. And what they moved away into is demand for Vimeo's platform, which provides video creation, hosting, and marketing tools to professionals and businesses has spiked in the lockdown. Shares of the company, which gained about 61% this year, and uh, rose 8.8% in extended trading. They are a SaaS company, right? They, they had built all these tools for video creators because they were, you know, they had these tools because they were trying to compete with YouTube. Very hard to complete, compete with a platform monopoly. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about Netflix versus YouTube and now I, I'm taking YouTube every day of the week. Great example. Vimeo can't compete against YouTube, has to pivot, become basically a SaaS business. Doesn't mean the business is doomed, but nonetheless, they aren't able to be a number two to YouTube. Basically, no one's able to be a number two to YouTube. Um, they're just so dominant. I mean, who's the number? There are no number actual like pure YouTube competitors, right? There's other people competing on the fringe of YouTube, but it's just YouTube. Still, they've done a great job with it. Seems like they've been able to, you know, find some good growth, find a good niche, provide these services. There's a bunch of new content creators out there. And that is the play they've gone with Vimeo. Um, and now to, you know, some degree of success. And they're looking to, you know, spin this off and and kind of monetize more of their stake that they have in the business. Um, so good for them and you know that's that's the risk that you get when you when you go up against the the platform monopoly in the space uh this news was kind of interesting we saw this recently ByteDance is looking to raise money at a 180 billion dollar valuation they're looking to raise two billion dollars ByteDance is in discussions to raise two billion dollars before listing some of its businesses in hong kong hmm okay I mean, I, why? This company was supposed to be making billions of dollars in profit. So you're making billions of dollars in profit. Why do you need to raise $2 billion? Because to me, this isn't them saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to let some of our investors sell off their shares, $2 billion worth of their shares. You know, that's different. Uh, that, then the company isn't raising capital for itself. Maybe it's taking a little bit longer to go public than people thought, whatever. You know, people will take a little bit of a discount to, to sell their share if, you know, they can get out pre-IPO, whatever, right? There's a little bit of a discount there because it's still private. It's still um, illiquid, much more illiquid than when you're public and, and, and you know, are on uh, the stock exchange. So kind of curious, this article says here, while ByteDance was said to have generated more than $17 billion in revenue in 2019, but this article isn't highlighting the profit number, which they were touting. ByteDance makes $3 billion in profit on $17 billion in revenue. So why are you raising $2 billion? You're going to go do some crazy roll-ups, some crazy acquisitions? I mean, $3 billion in profit. I mean. 
I would assume this isn't like they're also reinvesting some of this money, which actually takes away from the profit number, unless they're fudging the profit numbers, right? So maybe they made $5 billion in profit and they said, well, we're going to invest $2 billion in these other initiatives. Uh, and so then that is an expense and that hurts your bottom line, right? So what are you using $2 billion for when you made $3 billion last year? And when you're about to go public, you know, you know, even if you want to buy a company for $10 billion, you don't need to put $10 billion down in, well, A, you don't need to have $10 billion of cash in the bank today. You can go get debt to finance that transaction. You can use your stock, which you're about to IPO with, to finance that transaction. You know, I just don't know what they would want to buy or what they want to use this money for. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think it just goes back to kind of just a, a general kind of hesitancy, hesitancy that I have for um, Chinese stocks. And, you know, this isn't uh, the reason why I have hesitancy on Chinese stocks is because Chinese stocks don't have the same uh, audit and accounting requirements that basically any other public company that is listed on a U.S. exchange. So if you're a Chinese stock and you're not listed on the U.S. exchange, don't worry about me. My comment does not apply to you. Do whatever you want. But it's very well known that Chinese stocks listed on U.S. exchanges are not held to the same auditing and accounting requirements that basically every other public company that is listed on a U.S. exchange is required to adhere to. There is a proposed legislation um, in Congress from that's actually you know both it's bipartisan Democrats and Republicans that are both you know uh, putting forth legislation to to help level the playing field, right? And, and require that Chinese uh, stocks are, are, are held to the same standards as everyone else. Makes sense. Just took like 20 years for that to happen. That's another reason why you see more Chinese um, stocks be shifting their shares to the Hong Kong exchange, for example, because there's going to be greater transparency required from these companies. And we've already seen it bite investors where it hurts. Uh, like Luckin Coffee, which Luckin Coffee was no small cookie. That was like the Starbucks of China. Uh, like Starbucks committing blatant fraud. Kind of an issue. Not a small, like big company. Blatant fraud. Cooking the books. So, um, I don't know. Call me skeptical. It just seems odd. Don't know why. Uh, I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on if you're ByteDance, right? Like TikTok is about to be banned in the United States, despite what the media is saying. TikTok's in deep trouble, folks. Deep, deep trouble. If this deal falls through with uh, Oracle and Walmart, and I, and there's still a lot of uncertainty around that deal, but the, um, the, the power rests with the executive branch to limit how foreign companies or actually any foreign agent operates in the United States, including foreign entities. Um, so there are some like court challenges and things going back and forth. It's really a moot point as the court process works itself out. I think we will all see that um, 
these restrictions on TikTok are very real and will be upheld, at least, you know, in the court of law. And uh, this deal, which is still a little bit wonky, I'm going to be honest. Apparently now what they're saying is that, you know, the way they they finagled this kind of TikTok thing was they said that American um, American investors would control over 50% of TikTok. The way they got to that number is that I think Oracle and Walmart were going to get a 20% stake in um, in TikTok. The other 80% is owned by ByteDance. Um, American investors in ByteDance own about 40% of ByteDance. So, you know, 0.4 times 80, that gives you 32%. 32% plus 20% gives you 52% American ownership. So what they were saying is that you are going to need to s- split up that that 32% from the 80. So ByteDance would be holding 48% ownership. 32% would then be divvied up relative to the ownership stakes of the American investors, right? Um, so ByteDance ownership is not this kind of pass-through, you know, pseudo-American ownership. It will be literally, you look at the cap table, it's 52% American, 48% ByteDance. And I think the board is all Americans. I don't know if uh, if they figured out if uh, Zhang Yiming, the CEO of ByteDance, will be on the board of TikTok or not. But if he is, certainly, you know, the other four seats are going to be all Americans. That is the proposed deal. It's wonky and there's a lot of stuff, you know, that, that still isn't public about how it's going to work and if it'll pass and all this. But it is a very real risk to ByteDance. Just this cat, all this cash stuff. I don't know. It's, it smells fishy and it seems like a distraction. Why do you go through all the effort if you're making $3 billion in profit the prior year? Food marketplaces in the US. Um, we're seeing things heat up. There is an interesting article that shows uh, Instacart's performance. Instacart is surpassing Target and Kroger in online grocery delivery. This is the CEO of Instacart. Here's the graph. Which of the following online grocery sources have you purchased in the past 30 days? Walmart's at the top. We've talked about Walmart. Walmart, uh, pickup in store, you know, Walmart digital grocery has been a huge driver of their uh, success that they've seen with e-commerce. Walmart edging out Amazon slightly. Um, they've, they've kind of regained share. They actually dipped down during um, COVID because they just couldn't handle, you know, back in like March, April, maybe May, they dipped down and Instacart actually surged past Walmart. Now things have leveled out a little bit. You'll see here, Instacart at 20%, Target at 18, Kroger at 12. The interesting thing is all five of these companies have marketplace initiatives. All the top five. Instacart is a pure play marketplace. Amazon, they know marketplace. Actually, Amazon has a very strong hybrid approach with Amazon Fresh. Actually, a lot of linear inventory with what Amazon is doing. Um, But there is obviously marketplace supply in some food and a lot of the durable food goods or, you know, durable grocery goods. 
Um, that's much more marketplace uh, than I think you know the fresh and the produce. But there is still some marketplace inventory on Amazon for uh, you know perishable products. Walmart has been pushing marketplace aggressively and doing very well with that. Um, Instacart, Pure Play Marketplace from local retailers, and Target. Target launched, I think it's called Target Plus, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe 150 sellers. It's a, it's a very curated marketplace approach. We've been skeptical of it because, you know, they are kind of selectively picking partners, other um, brands and other suppliers that are going to bring them a lot of SKUs. You know, it's, it's less focused on the bottom-up approach and more about kind of picking, you know, 100 or 150 uh, curated suppliers in you know for what target is doing i um you know i think we've seen also target by shipped which is actually on this list but all the way at the bottom you can barely even see it it's at 2.7 percent this is the thing to me which is kind of bizarre is I mean, I think Target Plus is really not so much focused on food. I think it's more focused on kind of, again, non-durable like clothing and accessories and appliances and like all the other stuff Target sells. I think it's less focused on food. Shipped, you would think, would be, you know, where Target really gets that marketplace bump from food marketplace. But it's all the way. I mean, Peapod's beating shipped. I mean, what is going on? Um, I mean, we've covered it before. Just you know, I, I think it, I think it's just um, not a good integration. You know, I, I don't think that acquisition and how to bring ship together with Target is just not working out well. Um, so that's kind of disappointing to see. Very much so, a um, Instacart s competitor that you would think would you know would Target would be able to really supercharge uh, that business, but. Um, you know, I think we got to do a deeper dive there. Kroger um, launching a marketplace over the summer, I believe, or in the past few months. And that is food focused. Uh, that is a retailer. You know, this is a grocery retailer launching a food marketplace initiative, letting third party sellers, you know, local suppliers, specialty suppliers list their food products in in Kroger's marketplace. Um, we'll see how that pans out. You now actually have three retailers that are all uh, trying to do their own marketplace. Albertsons, Kroger, uh, and a hold, uh, I think just announced a hold Del Hayes. They own things like Stop and Shop and, and, and a bunch of other brands in the US and Europe. Um, Massive grocery chain doing maybe around $70 billion in revenue. And uh, they have launched, they're also going to do a marketplace. There's other grocery retailers in other parts of the world like Carefor, uh, which is more in Europe and, and, and I think maybe Brazil. Um, they're doing marketplace. Interestingly enough, they're actually all using the same technology provider, Miracle, to do their marketplace technology, right? To provide the tools to the third-party sellers. And we had Adrian, the co-founder of Miracle on the show a couple of weeks ago. You know, the interesting thing there is that Miracle's launched this thing called Miracle Connect, which is trying to 
help those third-party sellers get attracted and signed up for other competing marketplaces. So the SaaS provider into these retailers, uh, right, that's powering the tools to help these retailers suck in third-party seller inventory is now also trying to advertise to third-party sellers to join other marketplaces. And a lot of these large enterprises are the SaaS customer, like a Kroger, Albertsons, a Hold, and I think Carefor. And the the largest seems like huge growth category of their customers are actually um, e-commerce startups. So now you're enabling these e-commerce startups that had a challenge to get third-party supply because they don't have enough demand. Now you're able to plug into Miracle Connect if you're an up-and-coming e-commerce startup and you want to sell food. Now you can start to get marketplace supply via Miracle Connect and compete more aggressively with the likes of Kroger, uh, Albertsons, Hold, Carefor, etc. It's a, uh, I think Adrian called it a paradox. I think long term it makes sense why they're doing it, but it is a difficult pivot um, and a very delicate balance that I think these large enterprises particularly now you have three or four of some of the largest grocery stores all doing their marketplace stuff with your technology. Pretty sure some of them are not going to be too happy that there are clearly conflicts here around who actually owns that seller uh, and, and, and what, what is your product learning off of the IP, off of the, the product mapping, the data, um, all of these things that the software, their software is helping to onboard these sellers and and centralize that product catalog and and do all these other things and now you can take that technology and leverage all of those learnings to uh, benefit these smaller up-and-coming e-commerce competitors so point is food and all things kind of direct to consumer food um, away from the restaurants as we've seen because of covid everything kind of consumer food oriented is on fire we're going to continue to follow this but i i think this is just the beginning of, of what we're going to see with kind of um, uh, activity and, and, and um, uh, how more investment and more dollars are going to be going after the kind of digital consumer food needs. So more to come on that. Uh, last topic here is a topic very near and dear to my heart, which is uh, EU and their antitrust case, which we have been waiting for. We have been waiting for years, years for this to happen. Um, Frankly, I was close to to launching a GoFundMe to, and I was going to pitch in, you know, 100,000 bucks and say, let's go raise a million dollars and screw it. I'll sue Amazon because the DOJ doesn't know what they're doing. If you saw what we were talking about with with, uh, the Google case, they launched against Google. I mean, it's a complete joke. Uh, these guys are, you know, five years behind the ball and uh, just not figuring it out. So um, finally, EU, someone has figured out that when tech monopolies get huge scale, they take advantage of the supplier, not the consumer. Finally, the EU has truffle hunted down that path and is launching a um, investigation against exactly that, saying that Amazon breached European antitrust rules by using independent sellers' data for its own benefit. This is the absolute right positioning. And 
the commission said Amazon was using the data of third-party sellers, such as order numbers, revenues, and number of visitors to inform its strategic business decisions, like reducing the price of products. Also, Amazon's white label products. And uh, data on the activity of third-party sellers should not be used for the benefit of Amazon when it acts as a competitor to these sellers. It's <clears throat> exactly right. This is where platforms really get in trouble. When they vertically integrate and they compete against their suppliers. When they vertically integrate and compete against their suppliers, this was actually some of the case with Microsoft, right? It was using its, its a, it had Internet Explorer and it was giving Internet Explorer preferential treatment against, you know, uh, the, um, the Netscapes of the world and the other browsers on Windows. And so uh, that's actually what they got dinged for was you vertically integrate and then you take advantage of other developers in that case, in this case, third party sellers. They're, I mean, we've covered on the show so many other things and transgressions that Amazon has taken out on third party sellers like product managers asking the seller to give them a purchase order. That purchase order contains who that seller is, is sourcing their product from, right? The product manager says, hey, seller. I need to see the purchase order because I need to see that your products are legit and genuine. And then the product manager says, oh my God, look at this purchase order. Let me just go contact this manufacturer myself and just one P it and just order from the seller. And now Amazon keeps the margin and I'm going to cut out the distributor or the third party seller. That has happened countless times. Um, that's not even what is here in this statement about what the EU is looking at, but I, I hope that stuff will come up as well. And so on Twitter, I was saying this is a great move. Uh, you know, finally the right, the right direction. A common response is, well, hey, what's the difference? You know, like Walmart did this, right? There's no difference between this and Walmart. Now, here is the response. It actually is completely different than Walmart. Walmart was nowhere near as dominant as Amazon is today when it comes to looking at third-party sellers. Amazon controls over 70% of the 3P third-party sales in the United States. I'm sure it's a similar number, if not higher, in Europe with third-party sellers. Why does that matter? Because in antitrust law, it says, are you disadvantaging the customer? Third-party sellers are actually the customer of Amazon. I would actually argue that when it comes to third-party goods, marketplace goods, the customer is not even the consumer. It's actually only the seller because Amazon's making its money by taking a, a percent of that transaction from the seller. Who's paying Amazon? It's actually the seller that's paying them 10, 15, 20% of the sale price. And that money is actually going to Amazon. So the, the money is actually coming from the third party seller. So you think about who's paying Amazon, third party seller. Who's the customer? Third party seller. Why is that important? Because if you treat third-party sellers as a category of users, customers in this case, and you say, where can third-party sellers sell their goods online, right? Through other marketplaces. You know, I think a common misconception of these third-party sellers is that these are massive brands that can readily sell through other channels besides marketplaces. That's not actually the case. Amazon itself has um, issued countless reports and studies showing, you know, the average size of their sellers or small businesses, that Amazon is helping small businesses, that, you know, they are creating, you know, new business opportunities for entrepreneurs. And I mean, 
that's the whole ethos of how Amazon is branding. And if you look at their Q3 earnings release for 2020, they have a whole section in there that just talks about, look at this community we're building of third-party sellers. Look at, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of sellers that are building their business on Amazon. Literally like what they're saying. The challenge is that those businesses can't readily go and sell into retail stores, right? Selling into retail stores is a whole other ball game. You need a completely different, it's a completely different business. These are third-party sellers that have grown up uh, selling online and selling through marketplaces. And that's its own category of uh, business model. And so now if you look at the other marketplaces that are out there, you know, who are they? Amazon, eBay, Wish, Walmart, Google shit, Target, we covered and doing much. And you say to yourself, okay, well, hey, Alex, you said Amazon's doing over 70% of, of 3P sales. How do you get to that number? Um, this article puts Amazon at $200 billion in GMV. Amazon actually stopped regularly reporting their GMV numbers. Jeff Bezos disclosed the numbers for 2018 uh, in his April letter of 2019, where he's saying, you know, 56% of our sales are, are from third-party sellers. When you look at the other marketplaces that are out there and, and you try and add up their U.S. GMV, it's, it's difficult to do so. It's not readily available information. There's eBay. When you take out cars, um, this is actually something that the House Judiciary Report noted about e-marketers uh, numbers being wrong because e-marketer was looking you know, at the top marketplaces and, and actually giving Amazon less credit because they were factoring in like car, um, automobile, vehicle sales into, say, eBay's numbers, which is wrong. It's not apples to apples, right? Amazon's not selling cars. And, and, and the ticket size for those transactions is so big. So I peg eBay around $30, $35 billion in US GMV when you take out automotive. Um, actually, I think majority of their GMV is international. US is, 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 is the largest um, uh, country, but it's still actually sub 50%, even if you include cars in that number. So I think eBay is around 30, 35. Wish is not disclosing their GMV, but I don't know. It's in the billions of GMV. They're valued at like $12 billion. So hard to say exactly. Maybe they're doing $5 billion in GMV. Walmart, another one hard to peg. Maybe they're getting close to 10% in e-commerce sales uh, on the $500 billion overall revenue number. Maybe uh, Walmart is getting around $40 billion in revenue, e-commerce, maybe 50, maybe 20 billion or 25 billion of that is, is third-party sellers, GMV. So maybe you're around 30 billion with a Walmart and a Wish. Uh, maybe you got another 30, 35 billion from eBay. So, you know, you're at 60, 65 billion. And then who else? You got Farfetch and the Real Real. They're each doing uh, maybe four or five billion dollars in gmv between the two of them and again that's not all just in the u.s farfetch is a big international business so maybe it's a few billion dollars in the u.s um you have up and coming unicorns like StockX and goat they're supposed to be doing at least a billion dollars in gmv each i think most of that is in the u.s so 
you know, maybe you throw all of those kind of luxury, like alternative good marketplaces together and you're five to $10 billion there, you know, maybe we're in the 70, $75 billion GMV range. And then, and then it, it kind of starts to fall off pretty quickly. You put that all together and I mean, Amazon was doing $270 billion in total throughput in 2018. And if you're saying that 56% of that was from third-party sellers, okay, now you're talking, call it 170, 175 billion third-party sales. We don't know a portion of that is from the US, but I think a big chunk of it is from the US. Now you say in 2019, you've got this $200 billion number. If Amazon's doing $150 billion in GMV in the United States, which I don't think is a far cry. Again, this is 2019 numbers. Um, that's $200 billion in third-party sales in 2019 for Amazon. So it's somewhere right around there in terms of if they're doing around $150 billion in third-party sales, um, you know, their numbers have skyrocketed now uh, in, uh, in 2020. These other sellers are around 75, let's say. I think that's actually pretty conservative. Um, pretty generous estimates I'm giving to, you know, Walmart and some of these others. Amazon only crossed the, crossed the 50% threshold, you know, where 50% of their sales were from third-party sales in the past few years, right? Amazon's been doing this for 20 years, more. So Walmart has not been doing it for 20 years. And I think, I think that probably Walmart GMV is probably maybe a third. I mean, I don't have anything to base that off. But if you look at the chart of where Amazon was and you try and overlay that with where Walmart is, I still think you have a lot of that is one piece sale from Walmart. Not a, not, not, not a knock for Walmart. I just think, I think 70, 75 billion in third party sales not on Amazon in the United States is a extremely conservative number. And $150 billion in the, in the trailing 12 months GMV for Amazon, don't think that's that far off either. Anyway, that gives you roughly a 70% Amazon uh, demand with third-party sales. You can beat me up if you want because I don't have the hard numbers, but the hard numbers don't exist. This is pretty much as good as it gets. Unless you get the government going in there and like subpoenaing them for their financials and doing the split in the analysis themselves. Maybe the EU will go and do that. I don't know. I don't think you have to say that Amazon has 70% uh, third-party sales for, you know, uh, for that market power argument to stand, but I do think it's somewhere around 70%. The reason why that's important is when you line that up and you look at Walmart's dominance, uh, in say the 90s when they were just on fire, they're nowhere near 70% dominance, right? If you look at who their suppliers were and who they were buying from, they're nowhere near that dominance, let alone, you know, even close to 50% uh, of, of having that much leverage over their sellers um, on, you know, uh, in, in their big box retail business. So, I think it's a very different comparison. And Walmart did have a lot of leverage and they would use that leverage to get, you know, more bargaining power, cram down prices, get better kind of 
you know, payment rates and, and fulfillment terms and all these kinds of things. Uh, but again, the, the, the relative dominance is not even close when you look at this community of third-party sellers, right? I'm not beating up on Amazon for their 1P business. One, they have 1P. Uh, Walmart has 1P. Walmart was doing 1P for decades. What I'm saying is the third-party seller business, that is where Amazon takes advantage and squeezes the margins and raises the rates on them in the holidays and you know, cuts them out of transactions, takes their data and uses it for their white label products. That is where the EU is trying to preserve more competition. That is where the EU can curtail those um, aggressive, some nefarious activity by Amazon. You got thousands of people. You can't control all these people. You know, Amazon says, hey, you're not allowed to look at this data. They have a policy, but then no one follows it and they look at the data. So what's Amazon going to do? Fire these people? You need, this is the role of the regulator to say, well, if you don't follow these rules, there are real repercussions. And that's going to make Amazon really enforce these things. And it's going to make the employees uh, really understand the boundaries. So it doesn't mean you break up Amazon. Breaking up AWS and Twitch from Amazon doesn't solve any of this. What this is saying is sellers and producers get taken advantage of by tech monopolies. How can you protect those producers, in this case, sellers, better? What are the protections? And we've talked about this in past episodes. What are the protections that you can put into place to protect sellers from the two biggest gripes that they have? One is being unfairly penalized by the platform, right? Getting kicked off the platform, uh, getting um, you know, suspended, having your 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 relevance, your ratings, your reviews, you know, dinged unfairly. The platform is one-sided. They don't listen to you. You can't even get anyone on the phone. They take uh, unilateral action and your businesses, your, your livelihood depends on Amazon. Uh, you're a seller and you're screwed. That's number one, right? There's no recourse. Uh, two sides to every story kind of thing, right? Uber drivers talk about this all the time. Second gripe of sellers and producers in general is pricing. I'm an Uber driver. You decide you're going to take 25% of the fee instead of 20. What can I do? Nothing. I'm Amazon or I'm a seller on Amazon. It's the holidays. I'm doubling what it costs to put your stuff in, in my warehouse. Why? Because I can. Uh, I'm going to 50, 50%. I'm going to 1.5x the take rate I take from your stuff in the holidays. Why? Because I can. You can't do anything. And they can destroy your margins. And now you got all this inventory, by the way, uh, on your balance sheet because you're the seller. And what do you, you know, you got to sell it. Otherwise, you can't pay it off. You've got, you know, you've got float, you've got terms and uh, you're buying stuff on margin. And, you know, it's, it's, you've got these sellers, um, you know, Amazon's doing deals with Goldman Sachs to give these sellers debt. So those are the two biggest gripes. Unfair kind of penalization, no rebuttal, no recourse and the pricing um so uh i mean this whole other thing about like just you know uh, pricing and raising prices you could lump into that cutting sellers out of a transaction because you took their purchase order and single source the product from from the seller's manufacturer directly 
that's that's above any kind of tax. That's that's like a hundred percent tax. I just disintermediate you altogether. So that would fall into that bucket. Um, and I think you know the EU will put other stuff into place or around like you know data controls and and you know the people on on the white label team and 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 stronger Chinese walls. It makes sense. I don't think breaking up. Am- I don't think the risk here is breaking up Amazon. I just think it's better seller protection, which. Uh, helps to level the playing field. Is that going to nuke Amazon's multiple? No. Um, but it it is going to make it harder for them to as predictably control their um, their earnings results. And I and we'll see. This to me is will be interesting to see how deep the EU goes. Do they touch the matchmaking? Right? Do they touch the algorithm? This is what we were talking a lot about with um, with uh, with Tim about Facebook, right? The algorithm, the matchmaking. What's one of the core functions of the platform business model? How does Amazon prioritize the results? You know, are they unfairly prioritizing their own listings over third-party seller listings? That's another form of a tax, right? We saw we've seen Google Search do this. This is what. I was hoping the DOJ would address um, with Google search unfairly competing, competing against other websites that Google has vertically integrated on. So Amazon favoring its own products in the search results. That's another thing. We will see how deep they go. Um, but I think uh, that matchmaking algorithm is also a big part of this. And um, now that Amazon is also in the advertising business, now they can say, well, I'm only going to show Amazon products first. And for any third-party sellers to get visibility, now you got to buy ads. So um, there's some easier, lower-hanging fruit. And then there's some more complicated things, much more nuanced here around matchmaking. We'll see how deep they go. But this is the absolute right direction. This really does help uh, do what antitrust laws are meant to do, right? It's like saying... The government realized decades ago with AT&T and Ma Bell that it just didn't make sense to have five different telecom companies. And so what they said is, well, we are going to regulate your behavior and how you operate to make sure that your users aren't taken advantage of. Similarly here, who are the users that the platform monopoly takes advantage of? It's actually the sellers. And so how can you regulate understanding that platforms are inherently winner-take-all, modern monopolies? There's winner-take-all. How can you help make sure that even though you are only going to have one or two dominant players, um, that you help to make it a more fair, competitive environment uh, for the users that have to use it because it is the only or, or one of the two only sources to build your business, in this case, you know, being a third-party seller. So, more to come on this. Uh, I give my credit to the EU, Miss Vestager. It took her a few tries to get this. Took a few stabs. Took a couple wrong turns, but she got there eventually. Good for her. And I think they're on the right track. So, there's a couple questions here. I'm seeing government shouldn't allow online uh, e-tail businesses to conduct local retail businesses. That's interesting. I think those are a little bit different. Um, online versus local and you know if they're if when you look at these marketplaces that are doing uh their own stores amazon namely right i mean 
Amazon isn't doing their own stores in a marketplace model. They're doing it linearly. So if you're doing it linearly, you know, I don't really see what the unfair competitive advantage is. I think they just have strong brand recognition and and what Amazon's doing is really using its fulfillment and it's and you know, uh now I think they're rolling out like a thousand like express uh micro fulfillment centers around the country. Like you order something and you get it in two hours. Right? Like they're gonna stock hold here are the five thousand things that people want and I'm going to put a thousand of these micro like automated fulfillment centers uh, around the country and bam, you order it and you get in two hours. Technically, anyone can do that. Walmart can do that. Or, I mean, not anyone can do that, but the, the, the platform and kind of marketplace like unfair competitive advantage that I see them getting into local reads, more of a linear business, frankly. I mean, they have a good brand that they can leverage and they have really good fulfillment capability, but it's still a linear business. I, I don't know if that's really as unfair. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to take all. I will talk to you soon.